Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. podcast video store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the things that can get into us and out of us. Here's hoping everyone celebrating the Thanksgiving weekend enjoyed their festivities. Just a reminder about our Cyber Monday sale on December 2nd. Lots of great savings on season passes and bundles. And speaking of festive holidays, we're getting excited about our upcoming Season 13 finale, which will be our annual Christmas episode. It will be out on December 15th, so brace yourself for a not-so-silent night of Christmas-themed horror. Next week's penultimate episode will be a fun treat as we do a theme episode based on the old Grindhouse movies that used to splatter across the silver screens. Lots of chills and thrills ahead. After the finale, we'll take our usual holiday hiatus while still releasing some episodes for you, while Season Pass 13 members can look forward to lots of bonus episodes as well. And in the new year, January, when we'll be on our European 2020 tour, tickets available at thenosleeppodcast.com slash tour, we have some very exciting shows for you, the likes of which I can't quite divulge at the moment, but you can rest assured January 2020 will be a very unique month for the No Sleep Podcast. And the No Sleep Podcast is ready with this week's stories. So turn down the lights and grab the remote because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we join a scientist who's long been derided by his peers. The relationship between science and spirituality has been a fractured one to say the least. But this one scientist claims he has proof of the soul leaving the body. In this tale, shared with us by author Paul Miscavige, there's a chance to see that evidence, and it involves showing his peers a planned death. Performing this tale is Jeff Clement. So whether you believe in the existence of the soul or not, this man certainly does, as we find out through direct observations. My name is David Swan. I hold a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, and I would like to announce the greatest discovery in the history of mankind. After closely observing and documenting exactly 244 executions and murders, I have systematically proven the existence of the soul and have documented its departure from the body. I'll start by saying this, I am not 
a ghost hunter. These pseudoscience charlatans prey upon your more primitive instincts. They utilize the power of suggestion to reel you in. These ghost hunters might subjectively observe a drop in temperature and suddenly everyone in the room is cold. They might interpret patterns and static as cohesive words or messages. They attempt to present self-generated feelings as evidence. They're liars, and those who believe in them are nothing but fools. Have I also been called a fool in the past? I have. And at times, in the depths of self-doubt, I have even believed them. But I persevered, despite their petty, jealous attempts to sling shit at the true genius among them. With this discovery, they will realize the true error of their ways. Where the soul originates is outside of my area of expertise. I will not use this pulpit to explain the sudden confirmed existence of a god. I'm a scientist, not a theologian. There will also be no conjecture on exactly when a soul enters a body. Is it at conception? At birth? I do not know these answers, but as mentioned earlier, I do know when it leaves. These claims that I'm making today are thanks to the wonders of analog photography. Digital photography is not reliable, especially when documenting the soul's departure from the body. You see, when a photo is taken digitally, it's impure. In that digital conversion, nuance is lost. Analog photography relies upon a chemical reaction within the film itself. All light is a form of energy, and when that shutter opens, that sliver of light causes a permanent chemical reaction to occur on the film itself, resulting in a pure, accurate record of wherever the camera happened to be aimed at the time. And that brings us to where we are today, Moscow, Russia. After receiving an unprecedented grant from the Russian Academy of Sciences to conduct my research... I am now able to present my findings, along with a practical demonstration, to the larger scientific community. My grant was surprisingly quite large, so I planned to share the wealth. My audience consisted of 100 of the world's most influential scientists, engineers, and physicians. Each attendee would receive a 50,000 US dollar research grant to be used at their behest, the only condition being their personal participation in the experiment. The experiment took place within a lavish mansion of an ex-KGB administrator on the outskirts of Moscow. Upon their arrival the day prior, attendees were led into a massive banquet hall where they were encouraged to drink and feast to their heart's delight. I had begrudgingly made my rounds, greeting each with a firm handshake and a smile. I found it amusing that these people, many of whom had outright and publicly dismissed me in the past, were suddenly my best friends, as if we'd been old pals for years. I eventually sat and ate my fill before returning to my chambers to prepare for what would follow. I had a hand in personally selecting the condemned of whom we'd use for the experiment, and I had come across a fine specimen indeed. 
male, 23 years old. He had a wide face, but was not fat and possessed striking blue eyes. His body was free of any tattoos or piercings. I had been told that he was not a Russian citizen, but a Ukrainian sniper convicted of killing no less than 13 Russian soldiers before his capture. I had descended to the guarded room in the basement and presented him with a platter of offerings and a goblet of wine from the feast above. In addition, I had asked the butler to deliver to him the finest linens the estate possessed, along with his military uniform, freshly washed and pressed. When the morning came, I looked outside to see that a frost had developed along the edges of the windows and a light dusting of snow frosted the grounds. Overcast skies hung low. I breathed deeply through my nostrils. Never have I felt more alive than at that moment in time. The experiment took place in an old operating theater on the premises. My esteemed audience collected their grant checks at the door's threshold before filtering into the room, single file, taking their seats in antique wooden chairs. A 35mm camera had been placed under each seat. My heart beat with anticipation, and my insides fluttered. I stood in a small, darkened prep room with the door open just a crack so I could get a look at my audience. Standing there, a thought came to me. Is this what Tesla felt like just before his grand reveal at the 1893 Chicago World Fair? Is this what it feels like knowing that in a few short moments, the world will change forever. I was startled when a hand fell on my shoulder and looked back to see a uniformed member of the Russian military. He gave me a nod. It was time. I puffed out my chest, adjusted my tuxedo and opened the door, stepping past the darkened threshold and into the spotlight. The idle chatter of the audience promptly died down as I made my grand entrance. I stood in the center of the auditorium in front of a steel gurney and once again adjusted my jacket as I looked left, right, and then finally straight ahead at the audience before me. <clears throat> to my esteemed friends and colleagues, welcome to the Russian Academy of Sciences Grand Operating Theater. And thank you for taking the time from your busy schedules to be here today for this momentous occasion. Today, before your very eyes, history will be made. I paused and watched. They were captivated. Men were literally shuffling to the edges of their seats. Seeing this exhilarated me. Today, in this controlled environment, you will witness and physically document the instant the soul leaves a body. Oh. I heard that, and I understand. Many of you are in doubt, no? I welcome that doubt, and I would expect nothing less. This is not merely an observational demonstration, 
but an exercise in which you yourself will participate. Each of you take a moment to examine the 35mm camera that has been placed under your seat. As per the instructions of the invitation, and to preserve the integrity of this experiment, I will now ask that each of you load your camera with a 35mm film that I had asked you to bring. If you do not have film, it will be provided. Each section has an assistant that can help you load it into the camera if needed. Those of you who have brought their own cameras, I will ask that you use the provided equipment for phase one of the experiment. Once phase two begins, you can use any camera you'd like, provided it's not digital. I stood patiently and folded my hands as I waited for each attendee to load film into their cameras. Now before I begin, allow me to lay out the parameters of the experiment. Each of you should now be in possession of your $50,000 grant check. The only condition of acceptance is your compulsory participation in this experiment. If any of you object, that is fine. Feel free to exit now if you so choose. A chaperone will collect your check, gather your luggage, and escort you to the airport. The room fell into a dead silence. The audience looked at their sides and behind, but nobody rose from their seats. Wonderful. Let us begin. Dead bolts were fastened on each exit. Small, muffled grumbles of uneasy chatter followed. For phase one of the experiment, all you will do is take a photograph, or multiple photographs if you so choose, with the camera provided to you. Please ready your camera now. The audience followed my instructions and readied their cameras in their laps. Now, what follows may be disturbing to some, but please stay cognizant that we are in another country with rules and norms that may seem foreign to what we are used to, but rules and norms nonetheless. In a moment, you will see two men enter the room, one condemned, one executioner. The condemned will lie on this gurney. He will be blindfolded, and as per Russian law, the executioner shall perform his duties by inflicting a single gunshot wound to the head. It is at that moment of death, and immediately thereafter, that I ask you to start taking photographs of the scene before you. Phase two will begin shortly thereafter, and immediately upon its conclusion, we will be developing the film under your supervision in this very room. Let us begin. I gave the cue with a clap of my hands. Behind my right, a door opened, and of his own volition, the condemned entered the room. He was shackled, and the noise of his chains as he shuffled in seemed amplified and reverberated through the walls of the theater. He stopped for a moment and looked up at the audience before him. I watched them as well. It was fascinating to see their reaction to his gaze, as if they were hesitant to make eye contact with him. Heads turned away and looked in other directions. The condemned stood and faced the audience proudly with his chin up. He turned from them, 
gave me a courteous nod and positioned himself on the gurney before him, resting his head on the metal support at its edge. A priest entered the room and gave the young man his last rites. The priest made the sign of the cross on his forehead and took his hand as the man uttered what would be his final words. The priest stood there for a moment longer as they gazed into one another's eyes. He then kissed the man's hand and gripped firmly for another second before placing it on his torso atop the other. The priest then turned and exited. His light footsteps faded, and the thundering steps of the boot-clad executioner were heard as he made his entrance. The executioner wore a black ski mask and stood before the man lying on the gurney. He said something in Russian to him. The condemned remained silent. Ready your cameras. The executioner then removed a pistol from his holster and fired a single shot into the man's temple. The young man shuddered violently and exhaled his last breath as blood spilled from the wound and from his nose like water from a faucet. Bolted to a rafter with a clear view of the attendees, mounted cameras took several pictures of the audience at this time. The executioner quickly took hold of the handles of the gurney and wheeled the corpse from the auditorium as an assistant appeared to clean the floor of blood. Several attendees were now examining their cameras, looking for what pricked their fingers. Everybody settle down and let me explain. Welcome to phase two of the experiment. Approximately half of you, randomly chosen, I might add, have received a prick of the finger. Those who were pricked I'll kindly ask that you please remain seated. Everyone else, please stand and ready your cameras. You are now allowed to use your personal photography equipment. Around half of the room stood. The other half calmly sat. Now, those who are sitting, and I'm sorry to say this since it's nothing personal, but you have three to five minutes left to live. There should be little to no discomfort as you pass, and the chemical's tranquilizing properties should keep you relatively docile. As for everybody else, you will now pick up your cameras and take photographs of your dying colleagues as they complete their transition. And do not forget, as mentioned before, participation is compulsory. I stood there, patiently, and watched as they considered their next moves. A woman began to cry. Several of the men looked to be in a momentary daze. The newly condemned just sat there, though, content. <laughs> Some were smiling. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your last warning. These poor souls have less than three minutes on average to live. Do not let that go to waste. Soon, all of the survivors were taking photo after photo. Some were taken with flash and some without. Others had chosen to document the experience with their personal cameras. 
shot and shot and shot until the condemned began to succumb to the chemical. I remember the man sitting dead center in the front row was the first to show signs of the chemical's efficacy. A pink foam began to come from his mouth as his lungs filled with interstitial fluid. His former colleague, who was quite gifted in photography, I might add, took a wonderful shot of him that captured the foam's unique hue quite well. The fixed overhead cameras I had planted were clicking away. Everything went according to plan. How marvelous! Those still sitting began to finally die. One by one, they slumped in their seats, to the left or right, or backwards, or some just simply rolled forward to come to a rest on the hard floor. Eventually, the last click of a shutter came and went, and all that was left was silence. The bodies had already settled where they were going to settle. The living just stood there in place. They looked at each other, catching brief glimpses of eye contact, before their gaze descended downwards to the white porcelain floor. My esteemed friends and colleagues, thank you for your participation this evening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I understand some of you may be upset, but for the time being anyway, we must move past that. What will happen to them? Well, that's a great question. Russia is a dangerous place, you see. And unfortunately, your esteemed colleagues were victims of a terrorist bombing. Heartbreaking, really. But anyway, I'd like to have you all come down here. It is time to develop our photographs. With a snap of my fingers, the room darkened to a shade of red, and assistants wheeled in a mobile film development station. Others came with ladders to fetch the film from the overhead cameras. The atmosphere was somber as we developed photos over the next two hours. Those with experience pitched in to help. In the end, we all had a chance to gaze upon our work. I heard gasps of excitement and some of despair when we saw the results. Some photos were destined for the cutting room floor, while others were absolutely magnificent. My favorite series is from the overhead camera emplacements. They started shooting just as the survivors began to photograph their dying colleagues. Never have I seen a soul so clearly on film. And so many of them. The wispy, transparent shapes were all very well defined. If you look at this photo here, you can clearly see them exiting the bodies of our amateur photographers as they took the final images of their expiring friends.
There's a legend of a beautiful woman who, when she speaks, emits diamonds and pearls from her mouth. This, of course, is the stuff of fairy tales. And, of course, when there's the promise of riches, there's also a roguish scoundrel in pursuit. In this tale, shared with us by author Chris Allenote, we're introduced to that cad and the two sisters he's convinced hold the secret to the treasure. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and Penny Scott Andrews. So watch what you say, especially when your words lead treasure hunters to your door, as we discover in Diamonds and Pearls. I knocked on the door at the top of the hill for a long time before I stopped to reconsider my tactics. Hopefully the sisters would see reason, but they were going to do what I needed them to, one way or the other. The Rose sisters lived by themselves in this modest house, which was almost a full day's ride from Banstead Downs. The intentional isolation of their home, not to mention the long, steep flight of stairs required of any visitor to climb to even reach their front door, made it plain that the sisters did not welcome company. I was out of breath, sweating heavily and ready to break down the goddamn door at the first hint of resistance. I raised my fist, ready to pound on the door. I took a breath. No, this situation called for discretion, tact and patience, not force. Coin and manners had purchased my way thus far, Perhaps a gentle approach would see me through this last obstacle as well. As important as my business was, there was no need for additional bloodshed. I knocked firmly but warmly, a friendly rat-a-tat-tat. The wind was all the reply I got, swirling and whirling around my coattails. Diamonds and pearls, I told myself. I mustn't forget what this was about. Mustn't lose sight of it. Mustn't lose my temper. Tense seconds stretched into frustrating minutes. The sun sank lower behind the hills. I started pounding on the door until my hand turned red, the desperate knock of a desperate man. Even with the reward close at hand, my patience was nearly spent. A small, rational voice in my head insisted that no one was at home, that I was wasting my time. On the other hand, if the sisters did have what I was looking for, there was no way they'd leave it unattended. I pounded until I thought my hand might split open, then switched to the other hand. Soon, in addition to having been bitten by the cold wind, my hands were now red, raw, and swollen. Hardly the hands of a friendly traveller. Without warning, the latch finally clicked and the door opened. I swung both hands behind my back, which gave me, I thought, an unfortunate posture of looming. 
I raised my chin and turned on my most enduring smile. Good evening. I'm sorry if I've disturbed you. She did not return my smile. Good evening. We were at supper. A double apology, then. There was still a chance that I could get what I needed, although that chance was getting slimmer. I was so eager to visit that I completely forgot the time. I'll come back in the morning. You are quite persistent for someone claiming to be considerate. The woman's voice was kindly, but there was a shrewd look in her eye that I didn't like. Why don't you tell me why you've come, and we can decide whether it's business for tonight, tomorrow, or not at all. I let my smile drop. The truth, then. I've come for an answer to a question, and I was hoping you'd be able to help me. My sister and I believe that the most fulfilling answers come from God. Have you tried praying on your question? Frequently, my lady, but I'm afraid that divine enlightenment has escaped me. Perhaps you could teach me to ask in a more pleasing manner. In truth, religion hadn't done much for me, but if feigned allegiance to her god would open the door, I'd bend the knee. I don't think that would be appropriate. And given the time, perhaps you had better return tomorrow. Or not at all. We cannot accept visitors after dark. Damn it. Damn God or damn whoever you'd like. Damn it. Taking a step back from her, I made to leave. Very well, lady. I shall return tomorrow. She started to close the door. Although, wouldn't you like to know the question? One question, one answer, and you won't see me again. I'll admit I wasn't unhappy to see her composure falter. Instead of expressing relief that I was promising to leave her alone, her mouth hardened into a thin, disapproving line. It was exactly the sort of thing I'd been hoping to see. There was truth to the rumor. I felt a fluttering in my stomach. So close now. When she replied, the lightness I was feeling turned to stone. No. You simply must return in the daytime. Already I can feel the Lord's judgment at speaking to you alone for so long, sir. Bab, lady. Thomas Bab of Devonshire. Duke of nothing. Lord of myself. My introduction was reflexive. Practice during my years on the road. Designed to charm right before I demanded their purse. The lady of the house was unamused, but didn't close the door on me, yet. Never mind. I will tell you why I've come. You will decide if you can help me, and if you can't, I'll go. Her continued silence was beginning to irk me. Might we speak inside, though? The evening air has brought a chill with it. I showed her my chapped, red hands... The implication that this was the cold's doing rather than my own. That got a reaction. Her cheeks began to flush hot. You presume too much, Mr. Babb. To arrive at the home of two women at the cusp of darkness, weapon at your side and request entry. Tell me what you would do in my position. 
I withdrew my dagger from its sheath just far enough for the steel to catch a glint of the light from inside the house. What I'd do, if I were you, lady, is understand the situation and cooperate. Her eyes narrowed at the sight of my blade, but there was no fear in her reaction. That was new. I'd threatened and robbed over a dozen women in the past six months, and all of them, upon seeing my blade, had begun to cry and offer me everything they had. Not the lady of this house, though. I was beginning to think I'd need to draw the dagger fully when she surprised me again by stepping to the side through the doorway, allowing me to enter. I kept my hand on the pommel of my weapon as I spared a quick glance back at my old bay horse. She was still cropping in the scrub grass at the bottom of the stone steps. Turning back to the house, I entered. Inside the door was a large common room. The furnishings were plain enough, but looked to be of better quality than two unmarried sisters should be able to afford on their own. I didn't know yet if the women were truly royalty in exile, but it was looking more likely by the moment. I kept looking around the room, wanting concrete proof of the riches I had been promised. I looked past the lady to the elaborate stonework surrounding their hearth. This is a beautiful home. It would seem that you and your... sister? She nodded and her eyes widened a little. I knew more than she expected and it troubled her. It seems that you are both well cared for. The lady, who had been backing away toward the far side of the room, spoke for the first time since I'd entered. You are going to tell me your business and then leave. I gave a short bow. Of course, lady. With a small flourish, I sheathed my dagger. It concerns a story. Walking toward her, I ran my fingers across the high back of a chair. It begins, as so many stories do, with Once Upon a Time but it gets much more interesting from there. I smiled again. I couldn't help it. I'm hoping you've heard this one. It concerns two daughters and some fairy gifts. One daughter was kind and received a wealthy gift. The other was wicked and received a curse. Do you mean to say, Mr. Bab, that you have threatened your way into our home based on nonsense? I thought you were brash, but now I begin to fear that you are mad. It's a mad world, lady. I strode forward, halving the distance between us. She flattened against the wall, finally afraid. My enthusiasm battled my self-control. I wanted my prize now, but she'd be useless if she collapsed into a shuddering wreck. I took a deep breath in and let it out slowly. I apologize, lady. I have been pursuing this tale for quite some time, and to be so near the end is... Hmm, thrilling. Please, what is it that you want from us? 
with a practiced flick of my wrist, I drew my dagger. First, I want you to stop moving toward that doorway. She flinched but didn't move again. I walked closer. Secondly, I want the girl from the story. The girl who produces diamonds and pearls from her mouth when she speaks. Is that plain enough, or shall I tell the whole story? The lady didn't reply, but her complexion was betraying her. Since I'd first spoken of the fairy gift, the color had been steadily draining from her face. Now her skin was the color of day-old ashes. Before I could press her further, a second voice called out from behind me. Josephine, is everything all right? I heard a man's voice. A moment later, another woman stepped into the room. She was older than Josephine and broader of frame. In fact, she looked as if she'd be more than a match for me in a fair fight. Luckily for me, it wasn't about to become fair. Upon seeing me, she moved quicker than I would have thought possible and put herself between me and her sister. She scowled. Why are you in our house? And after dark, no less, have you no propriety? Careful now, I cautioned myself. There were secrets to be had here, but if this beast of a woman forced me to kill them both on the spot, I'd learn nothing. Instead of the dagger, I showed my smile again. Patience, lady. As I was just telling your sister, I've come to visit with the young lady of the house. I'm told she's quite gifted. And I told him he was mistaken. Josephine had taken strength from her sister's presence, and color was rushing back into her pale cheeks. Agnes, I didn't know what else to do. Of course he's mistaken. We haven't had so much as a visitor in months, let alone... A girl touched by the fae? Fairies. You threaten my sister's life over fairies. Agnes stepped closer to me. Brave considering she had no weapons at all. Even if there were such a thing as fairies, my sister and I would have nothing to do with their foulness. We believe only in the one true God. I clucked my tongue. They were playing their roles wonderfully, but they had no idea how long I'd been searching or how much I'd sacrificed. That was a nice speech. Pity the barman in town tells things differently. <laughs> you would believe that man over us. Tell me, did he fall over drunk immediately after you spoke, or was it earlier in the day? He said that you have been paying for things with pearls. Neither woman had an easy answer for that. I gestured at each of them in turn with my dagger. Not only am I convinced that the girl is real, I am positive that she is living here. I stepped closer. Agnes backed up but kept herself between Josephine and me. You are wrong. The tale is just a tale. If you hurt us, it will be because you are cruel and nothing more. Agnes's head turned slightly. She shared a glance with Josephine. They might as well have spoken their thoughts aloud. Not only was I right, 
that I was about to get my reward. I won't hurt anyone, and I'll be gone within the hour as soon as you've shown me the girl. What right do you have to make demands of us? Josephine moved to stand side by side with her sister. I had a sudden and ugly premonition of the two of them rushing me at once. By the right of bloody violence, I know that the girl is here, Josephine, and I will not be denied. Agnes reacted to my familiarity, her face as wrinkled as if she was smelling something repellent. <laughs> Put your toy away. If you know so much about us, then you know who we are. And you must also know what shall happen to you if you harm us. You're in enough trouble as it is. When the king finds out that you've threatened his family, no place in the kingdom will be far away or dark enough to hide you from his vengeance. And there it was. From their own lips, confirmation. The king's cousins... And if that much was true, my heartbeat quickened again and the small hairs on my neck stood erect. So close now. But Agnes's threat wasn't trivial. The king wasn't known for his sense of humor. But then again, diamonds and pearls. I reached forward and pierced Agnes's arm with my dagger. She screamed and pulled away, blood already welling and staining her white shift. I closed the distance and put my empty hand to her neck, forcing her against the wall. She was indeed strong, but fear, surprise and leverage were on my side. As an added threat, I held the point of the dagger level with her eye. The time for smiles and threats was done. I looked at Josephine while I held her sister fast. If I leave here empty-handed, I'll kill you both and burn the house to the ground. The king won't find me if you aren't alive to tell him about me. I turned to Agnes then. With no land, no home, no title, the king may as well try to take vengeance on a wisp of smoke. Stop! I looked back to Josephine. She was shaking and wringing her hands. Please, tell him. Agnes's voice was strained and she struggled against my hand. I eased up, letting her breathe. We mustn't. A promise. The promise means nothing if we're dead. And then Gwendolyn will die too. Gwendolyn. The girl had a name. But what's to stop him, even if... He will not be swayed, sister. I don't think we need any more proof of that. This is what he wants. Those last words were loaded with something I couldn't discern. Some hidden meaning for her sister's hearing only. But my own attention was already onto other things, and I couldn't focus on anything except diamonds and pearls. Agnes swept her hand up with more gentleness than I would have credited her, pushing my dagger aside. You won't need this now. I had a wild, contrarian thought to cut her again for spite, but instead I let her guide my hand down to my side and I sheathed the dagger. 
Perhaps there was still some room for manners, after all. I'm sorry that I had to... No, you're not. She wasn't threatening now, but she wasn't about to forgive either. Josephine touched my shoulder. Please, Thomas. Is there nothing we can say to change your mind? I removed her hand. I think not. Her skin was soft and cool. It occurred to me that, under different circumstances, I would have desired something quite different from Josephine. But romance could have its day tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. Today was for my fortune. Then follow me. Take one of those candles. She turned to her sister. See to your wounds. I'll be back soon. I paused. Things were going my way at last. But I hadn't survived years on the road by being careless. I'll need to restrain your sister before we go. You can't. She's bleeding. I'll bind her arm first. Let me get some proper bandages then. We have some in the other room. Be quick. Josephine looked at her sister again, then walked quickly from the room. I turned my attention to Agnes. You understand, don't you? I can't take the chance that you'll run for help the moment I leave you alone. You have to do what you must. Her expression was hard to read again, as when she'd said, this is what he wants. I didn't like it. I looked her in the eye. What are you not telling me? We've told you everything you wanted to know. She winced then, clasping her hand tighter to her bleeding arm. And we're willing to do anything in our power to have you leave us alone. I was about to press her further, but Josephine returned. True to her word, she carried a bowl of water and some bandages, nothing else. No weapon at any rate. Josephine crouched nearby and began to raise up Agnes's shift. She didn't pause in her ministrations, but spoke loud enough for me to hear. Would you please turn around? Give us a small amount of dignity after what you've taken from us today. It was a fair request, and I had no desire to look on Agnes's naked body at any rate, so I turned. It gave me time to admire the richness of the furnishings again. It couldn't be more certain that they had riches to spare. There were heavy curtains on the windows tied back with rope. Perfect. I untied the knots and kept the rope handy. The curtains fell into place and hid the three of us from the outside world. The sisters murmured together as Josephine worked. I heard the sound of water splashing, Agnes hissing in a breath, and then the faint whisper of cloth on cloth. You can turn around now. Agnes's shift was back in place, and the water in the bowl had turned pink. I tied Agnes's arms to the chair, but didn't make them as tight as I might have for a man. I'd hurt the lady enough for one day. I looked her in the eye. I'm trusting you'll still be here when we return? She looked back, and there was still that oddness to her expression. I will be here. 
<clears throat> Let's get on with it, please. Josephine picked up a candle in its holder and walked toward the left side of the fireplace. I was about to question why she was walking away from the door when she pressed on a portion of the wall and it moved, revealing the top of a staircase. I had to stop myself breathing a sigh of relief. If I'd killed them both, there was no way I would have found the hidden doorway. Josephine led the way down. Why are you so wicked, Mr. Burr? You seem well-bred, and you speak fair. It's my own business. It came out harsher than intended, and I tried to amend it. It's a difficult tale, and I don't like telling it. In a way, though, the damage was done. Why are you wicked? A simple question, but enough to transport me back in my thoughts to events and promises long dead, but never forgotten. I remembered my landlord, Botolf. The fat dotard had just enough wits to fool me, dangling the promise that my holdings would become my own upon his death, with all the rights that it afforded. <laughs> One day, lad, this will all be yours. I worked that thankless patch of dirt until I was manic with exhaustion, until my own wife and unborn babe perished while I was away in the field. She had been ill for some time, but there had been nothing to do. Food was scarce and healing non-existent. By the time Botolf died, I had nothing else to live for. The corpulent bastard simply fell off his chair one night, spilling his wine as he clutched at his chest. At least he did that much for me. If he'd told me that the Baron had purchased my parcel of land over a year prior, I'd have gutted the man like a fish on market day. This is my land. Have him removed now. The day of his death was the day I swore to live the rest of my life as a highwayman. If I couldn't have the land and freedom, I'd have wealth. Josephine had kept her silence as we kept descending. I felt her last question as a pressure in my mind until I knew I had to answer. I lost many things, but soon I'll have enough to put things right. You say so, but this is not what you want. Whatever it is that you imagine you'll receive, you are mistaken. The steps continued and continued down into the mountain. How far were we going? Who had dug so deeply? It's none of your concern what I think. Although I think your brother was a fool to have had a fountain of wealth in his grasp and give it up so easily. <laughs> she laughed then. That single, short, coughing laugh was more penetrating than anything I'd heard from her or her sister yet. Well, is that what you think you're getting? She is a monster, created by monsters. So, first the girl didn't exist, and now she wasn't what I was looking for. I felt my face grow hot. Who was this pampered royal to tell me what I did or didn't need? 
I shoved her forward. I'll be the judge of what I need, lady. Lead on. She stumbled down the last three steps to the floor below, then rounded on me. Do not put your hands on me. I am trying to prepare you for what lies ahead. She held the candle up so I could see her face. My sister and I have cared for this thing for three years. Are you so stupid and careless that you'd ignore my advice? I didn't have an answer for that. And all things considered, wasn't that feeling, the one that had started when the sisters had acquiesced, growing stronger? Something was very much amiss here. Tell me. Let me have a drink of water first, please. Josephine had crossed the narrow hall and removed the lid of a nearby barrel. There was a dipper on a ledge near Josephine, and she filled it, then drank. She offered it to me, and I accepted. The water was warm and tasted of earth. As we refreshed ourselves, I became aware of a sound from somewhere distant. It sounded like someone was screaming. When she'd replaced the barrel's lid and the dipper, Josephine began to walk again. You use the word fountain. It's a more apt description than you know. She never, ever stops. When Gwendolyn was sent to live with us, she'd been married to the prince for 12 years. Eleven years and eleven months of that time was spent in the dungeons. She looked over her shoulder at me. The candlelight made her features jump and dance as if she were a goblin. Imagine, Thomas, living as she does. Twelve years, with every word you speak bringing hard, cruel stones to your mouth. Precious as they are, what wouldn't you give for a moment's respite? I opened my mouth to reply, but she cut me off, her tone rising as her story continued. And there are the roses as well. People forget the roses when they tell her tale. But they come as often as diamonds or pearls, thorns and all. For a few moments, we walked in silence. The reality of what I was about to see was dawning on me. Not only an endless stream of precious gems, but a real flesh-and-blood person attached to them. Josephine kept speaking as if her tale, once begun, could not be stopped. It was Agnes that asked my brother for the keeping of Gwendolyn. After seeing his cruelty towards the poor girl, it was all we could do. So we give her food, drink, shelter, and we deny her conversation. Deny her comp- Because she loves it. Those same fairies cursed their unholy existence that gave her the gift also made her unable to be quiet. The prince tried everything to keep the stones from coming, but by then her mind had broken. She stopped talking for a second, holding up a hand to me to wait. And now she thinks it's great, boisterous fun to speak as much as possible. As much as possible. That amounted to quite a lot of gems. 
If the prince had received enough wealth in just one month, I'd be a titled noble in no time. Josephine's story was disturbing, but hardship? I'd had hardships aplenty and survived. It was a matter of personal strength. I want to see. Josephine nodded. I understand. We walked around a corner and she paused only once to light a torch on the wall. The walls themselves had changed in appearance. The stones that had lined them gave way to bare earth. Here and there, with increasing regularity, there were dugouts in the walls filled with bones. A catacomb. I stepped forward and slipped on something round. I staggered and reached out to steady myself. My hand came to rest on the leg bone of a former duke, and I yanked it back, wiping it on my trousers. I took a nearby torch from its sconce and held it near the floor. The flickering flame was reflected in a dozen shining objects. I grabbed a handful of the shimmering things and studied them. There were three perfect pearls and as many diamonds lying in the palm of my hand. How can you just leave these on the ground? Josephine's warnings were already fading in my mind. It was easier to believe in cold, hard gems. Such riches and you grind them under your feet? Take them! It's what you want, isn't it? There are barrels of diamonds here, piles of pearls. Take them. Fill flower sacks with gems and buy a kingdom. Just please, leave Gwendolyn alone. She is not what you want, I promise you. I shone the torch up and out. There were indeed barrels lining the hallway now. God... I plunged my hand into the nearest barrel, coming out with enough stones to start my own village. But still, still... When you've spent enough time with nothing, getting some of what you need isn't enough. At least not for me. No, I had spent nearly a year chasing the story of the girl who spoke wealth. This close to the end, this close to meeting her, nothing else would do. If I left here right now and swayed the back of my horse with enough diamonds to encrust my throne, I'd still wonder until the end of my life what would it have been like to have had the girl in my possession. I have to see. Josephine turned away to lead, but before she did, I saw that tears had soaked her cheeks. Tears for Gwendolyn? Or tears for me. We walked along the row of barrels in silence. I thought Josephine might still be sobbing, but it was hard to tell. Josephine finally stopped in front of an iron-banded wooden door. There were enough gems covering the ground here that we had begun to shuffle our feet so as not to slip. There was a metal panel at the base of the door. It was latched into place, but looked as if it slid up and down. My question must have been apparent on my face because Josephine explained. We give her meals through here. Fresh lanterns too, when she wants them. Christ, they didn't even open the door for her. 
What was Gwendolyn, really? I think it was seeing that simple metal panel that rattled my nerves the most. More than the lady's pleas, more than the truth behind the fable. Josephine put her back to the door and produced a key from around her neck. It dangled from a leather thong, unremarkable bronze catching flickers of torchlight. The key to everything. Will you kill me now? There was none of the former fear now, only quiet resolve. I took the key from her hand. I should kill her. Once I turned my attention to Gwendolyn, Josephine could well run back to Agnes and send for an entire regiment of King's Guard to catch me. I couldn't do it. Whatever else was true, Josephine and her sister had taken in someone unwanted at the sacrifice of their own comfort and had kept their secret for three years. There was nobility in that, and it was worth rewarding. No. You've done all I asked, and I don't believe you'll stop me as I leave. Just a few minutes more, and you'll be free of this burden forever. Josephine nodded without taking her eyes from mine. God be with you, Thomas. And with that, she turned and started back. I watched her go and saw her turn twice to look at me, her face a nondescript pale blur in the gloom. Then she was gone. Diamonds and pearls. I knocked on the door. There was no reply, and I became aware that sometime in the last few minutes, the screaming had stopped. It was silent enough in the hallway to hear stones moving and shifting behind the door. I rapped on the door again. Gwendolyn? Come in. The voice was hoarse and low, barely sounding human, let alone feminine. I put the key in the lock and turned. Hello, Gwendolyn. My name is Thomas. I'm coming in now. Don't be frightened. As I reached to push the door open, I noticed that my hands were trembling. The door was heavy and gave reluctantly as it shoveled thousands of gemstones out of its path. Even in the dim light which shone from a lantern hanging on a hook in the center of the ceiling, the floor sparkled. A diamond, a pearl, or a rose with every word she speaks. The reality of the fairy gift was everywhere around me. It was magnificent and terrifying. Here and there, I thought I could make out something else poking up through the knee-high piles of gems. Were those... bones? Before I could take in any more of the room, the door slammed shut. I screamed. There was no helping it. Gwendolyn was no woman, but a demon. Though she possessed the delicate frame of a fairy story princess, that was where all similarity ceased. 
Stringy ash-brown hair hung in matted clumps to her waist, with angry pink patches of scalp showing through where the hair had been torn away. By way of clothing, the girl wore only a white linen shift stained deep maroon in streaks coming down from the neck. None of that was why I had screamed. It was her face. Underneath wild, staring blue eyes that had quite probably been beautiful once was a mangled horror that was no longer a mouth. Gwendolyn's lips were gone and what was left looked like strips of raw bacon stitched together with coarse black thread. Blood was caked in the indent of her chin even as fresh trickles issued from the hole. In that instant I gave up my hard-earned atheism and made the sign of the cross. Only in a world where God existed could such a devil exist. Josephine? I called back over my shoulder, hating the weakness in my voice and knowing the woman was long gone. She can't hear you. The lilting words delivered in her broken voice sent a chill across my back. Without breaking eye contact, the girl coughed. Three diamonds and a pearl spilled from her lips, along with a spattering of fresh, bright blood. I felt her gaze like a crushing weight. I stepped back deeper into the room. There were jewels everywhere. It was hard to find even footing. Gwendolyn stepped closer. I did then what I should have done the moment I saw her and reached for my dagger to put an end to this monster. It was a move I'd made a thousand times, but this time the hilt snagged in my belt and Gwendolyn leapt at me, shrieking. I staggered back, still trying to pull my blade free, but the jewels beneath my feet slipped and skittered as if they were alive. My legs flew out before me and I cried out once before landing hard on my back and losing all my wind in a single gasp. Gwendolyn dropped down on top of me, knees pinning my arms to my sides. I tried to push against the floor, but found only shifting stones that pressed hard against my hands. I had nowhere else to look but into Gwendolyn's ruined face. She was smiling. Dozens of scabs opened up around her mouth, painting it scarlet. You came to hear me speak, didn't you? She made a little noise in her throat and a stream of seven pearls issued forth, rolling down her chin like drops of spittle. After the pearls, she gagged again and reached into her mouth to pull out a perfectly formed red rose. A thorn caught at the side of her mouth but she jacked it free. Fresh blood sprayed forth and I felt the droplets on my cheeks. The roses are the worst. A smile widened, and she leaned in close enough that I feared she meant to kiss me. Instead, she pinched my nostrils shut with one hand, while her other covered my mouth. Shh, hush now. Diamonds pattered against my forehead. The girl's strength was phenomenal. I bucked against her, tried to twist my hips, but couldn't dislodge her. I tried again to reach the dagger, but grey clouds and bright lights were already blooming in my vision. I'm dying. 
an inane thought, but it repeated over and over in my head in time with the increasing beat of my heart. My chest was heaving with lack of air. My feet kicked uselessly at the gems on the floor. Without warning, she removed her hand and I gasped. That was when she began to speak in earnest. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Thomas, was it? It's been so long since I heard any visitors. The ladies no. keep me company, but they never no. have any news or gossip. Oh, gossip! I miss gossip. I was never one to talk about others when I lived with my father. But of course, when I lived at court, it was the most interesting part of my day. Things being what they were, I didn't say much, and so I would hear the most wicked things. As she spoke, gems poured out of her directly into my gasping mouth. Diamonds and pearls found their way into my throat, and I coughed, <laughs> sending the gems flying back at my tormentor's face. Unfazed, Gwendolyn went on. All right, washerwoman, I would have been if it wasn't for my special trick. Now, I tried to converse with my fair prince, but alas, after only a few weeks of marriage, he got tired of me. He was sick of waking up and finding diamonds stuck to his back. I talk in my sleep, you know. He had me put away and my lips sewn shut. But those fairies, they're chicksy. They get was stronger than any old bird, and soon I was chattering away like a little vampire again. Pearls and diamonds filled my mouth faster than I could clear them out. Gwendolyn clasped my chin and held me fast. A bile-scented rose fell past my face, all the while she talked. But all that is years ago. You're here now, and I'm sure we'll just be the best of friends. I'm always good friends with the men that the ladies bring to me. Aren't I, Thomas? Oh, dear. Shall I speak slower? Is this better? Is it... Did you get what you came for? Are you satisfied with your riches? Are you happy? She was shouting her words now, but they sounded to me as if we'd gone underwater. The grey flowers and purple lights had returned to my vision in earnest with centres of endless black. My cheeks swelled with hard, sharp gems. I tasted blood and didn't know if it was hers or mine. I tried one last time to scream. The gems, given a new opening, began to fill it, and the pain was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. Thoughts and memories began to flit through my mind at a breakneck pace. My wife in her funeral shroud, my oath to never again owe allegiance to another, the first whispers of the tale of Gwendolyn, days and nights on the trail of the girl who spoke well. Josephine's face, Josephine's words, this is not what you want. Josephine. Diamonds and pearls began to overflow my lips and run down my face, mingling with my tears. At the end, Gwendolyn must have stopped. I couldn't see or hear anything anymore and knew that I was dying. I lay still in the darkness, atop a million, million words, appreciating silence.
kids having imaginary friends is nothing new, especially when they have no father figure. And that's fine for young Serena. There's no need to worry about Serena's made-up man who lives in her closet, right? Well, in this tale shared with us by author Penny Tales Up, that just might not be the case, especially when Serena becomes more and more insistent that the man in her closet wants to marry her mom and make them all a family. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas and Nicole Goodnight. So don't be too complacent about your child's odd fantasies. They just may be a reality, especially if that fantasy is a proposal from Daddy Prince. When I told Blake I was pregnant, he handed me a blank check and told me to take care of the problem. He wasn't the prince I thought he was. I took the check, but didn't follow his implied instructions. Instead, I moved to a quiet town in Texas to start a new life with my daughter, Serena. Life wasn't the fairy tale I'd been hoping for. Reality doesn't pull punches. Romances end and daughters don't always know their fathers. Although I tried to pretend everything was rosy, deep down I knew it wasn't. Life leaves a mark. Even so, I was determined to live happily ever after. My heartbreak was secondary. Serena became my world. Years passed, and I threw myself into the role of a single mother. The money dried up fast, but we got by. I never told her about her father. That truth was too painful for a child. I wouldn't let one cruel prince stain my worldview or hers. I tried to spare her. That was my mistake. She was young enough to believe the fairy tale. Young enough that she didn't need to know anything else. The first time she mentioned Daddy Prince, I was curling her hair. Serena loved curls. She called them princess hairs, and I was happy to indulge her. I was sitting on her bed, wrapping her long, dark hair into foam rollers. As I snapped the final curler into place, she sighed and hung her head. What's the matter, Serena? I pulled back the covers so she could slip under them, walking over to the bookshelf to choose a bedtime story. As my fingers brushed across the bent spines of well-loved books, she sighed again. When are we going to live with Daddy Prince? I froze in surprise and turned to look at her. I wasn't prepared to hear her say, Daddy. My throat tightened and my eyes started to burn, but I forced a smile. Who is Daddy Prince? Hesitation came with every syllable. Serena didn't seem to notice. Her hazel eyes were shining bright. He's my daddy, of course. He wants us to live with him in his castle. She pointed towards her wardrobe. It was castle-shaped with a crenellated parapet and engraved doors. The closet was the crown jewel of her princess-themed room. I'd found it on the curb, abandoned in one of the wealthier neighborhoods. Mommy, why don't we live with Daddy? I knew a day would come where my daughter would need answers. Unfortunately, I wasn't ready to give them to her. Not yet. My internal prayer smoldered in my chest, but I pushed the thought away. Instead of facing what might have been a pivotal moment in our relationship, I changed the subject. 
Which story should I read? Her sour face told me that she knew exactly what I was up to. She flung herself back into her pillows, crossing her arms stiffly. Redness flared across her forehead as a tantrum brood, barely restrained. How about Aladdin? Princess Jasmine was her favorite, but this wasn't enough to cool her temper. She shook her head. Go to bed, Mommy. I want Daddy Prince to tell me a story instead. Her lips quivered, but she kept her eyes fixed on the castle closet instead of looking at me. The rejection stung. I leaned over to give her a forehead kiss, which she sullenly accepted. When I made it back to my bedroom, I broke down in tears and let the mascara run into my pillow. As I calmed down and began to drift off to sleep, I heard my daughter laugh and incoherent bits of one-sided conversation. I woke up to Serena's grinning face, her hands behind her back. Good morning, Mommy. Groggy, I returned the greeting and offered a sleepy smile as I threw off the covers and swooped down to hug her. My hands met something cold and wet. Reflexively, I let go and looked at her closely. The little girl grinned sheepishly and showed me what she was holding. A handful of small purple flowers, a large clump of wet dirt clinging to the roots. A present from Daddy Prince. She held them out to me. I didn't recognize the flowers, spiky and wet, but it looked like she dug them out of someone's garden. Sweetie, did you go outside before I woke up? Not me, the prince. To cheer you up, you seemed sad. I see. I didn't. Well, make sure he asks the neighbor's permission before going into someone else's garden and let me know so I don't worry. I didn't believe her, but I felt so guilty from the night before that I couldn't bring myself to call her out on her lie. Okay. I took the flowers. They were in bad shape. Soggy, sad little things. I decided to let them air out by the kitchen window and told her to wash up. My little girl had mud up to her elbows. She skipped off while I busied myself making waffles. I pulled the rollers out of her hair when she returned, mud-free, before we sat down to enjoy breakfast. Did you like the flowers? She looked attentively at her waffles as I poured the syrup. She wasn't satisfied until every square was filled. Of course, sweetie. Any gift from you is special to me. I didn't like the flowers, but I appreciated the gesture. You aren't supposed to be completely honest with children. Serena nodded with satisfaction. He said you would. Now can we go live with him? I nearly choked, setting down my fork and looking at her. Apparently, this conversation was going to happen, whether I was ready or not. I'm sorry, honey. We're going to stay here. This is our home. We can't move in with Daddy Prince. Why? I paused. Like most parents... I was accustomed to the whys of children. That single syllable was the epitome of frustration and dread. But I'd do my best to answer as gently as I could. Because I'm not married to him. I tried to keep it simple. My little girl nodded but was undeterred. Her smile came back. Okay, 
Well, then get married to him. In her eyes, this was an easy fix. I shook my head. He never asked me to marry him. But that's okay, sweetie. We have everything we need here. I have you, and you have me. He just has to ask? The hopeful look on her face broke my heart. It wasn't that simple. Blake didn't want kids. He'd made that abundantly clear. I wasn't about to reach out to him after all these years. Maybe. Saying no seemed too harsh. But I like things the way they are right now. He told me he wants to already. And he gave you a present. My stomach twisted with a weird flutter of discomfort. Her insistence was genuine, and I found the fantasy disturbing. Do little girls typically dream up princes for their mothers? Well, maybe the ones without fathers do. Sweetie, he didn't propose. Suddenly, I was tired again. I wanted to go back to my room and hide under the covers. I couldn't deal with any more questions, not even one. As though she sensed this, my daughter went back to her room. I could hear her playing, leaving me to scrub syrup off the table. When I went to check on her later, she was standing in the dark and lightly knocking on the castle wardrobe. Then she'd pause as if she waited for an answer. Naturally, she didn't get one. Serena saw me looking and smiled bashfully. He said he sleeps during the day, but I wanted to tell him the good news. I assumed she meant Daddy Prince. What good news? Serena didn't say anything, staring so intently at the closet doors that I thought she must not have heard me. I flicked on her bedroom light, which got her attention. <gasps> Don't! He doesn't like the lights on. I decided to humor her and turned it back off. I was a little concerned about the prince character she was concocting. What sort of prince preferred the dark? Then again, she'd said he was sleeping. Kid logic is irrefutable at that age, so I let it go. You learn to pick your battles as a parent. Leaving her to play, I sat at the kitchen table to pay bills and balance my checkbook. I lived paycheck to paycheck and had to pay things strategically. I could afford to pay late on some bills, but not on others. How nice it would be if there really was a prince ready to sweep in and take care of my problems. If only. Serena kept to her room. When I went to get her for lunch, she was still sitting in the dark. She changed into one of her costume dresses, mint green satin and tulle, with a plastic crown and ribbon-wrapped scepter. Her subjects were strewn about the room, face down. Barbies, mostly, but also a few stuffed animals. Normally, I wouldn't think twice about a scene like this, but it was a little odd when the lights were off with the curtains closed. It's dark in here, honey. Are you sure you don't want the light on? The only light came from the hallway, a yellow square that fell across my daughter's small form. She beamed at me, clearly having a blast with her game. I don't want the lights. Can I eat in my room? I'm not done playing. All right, come get it. Don't forget to rinse your plate when you're done. Serena was usually a bit more energetic, ripping through the house and demanding near constant attention. I was a little unnerved, but also relieved to have a small break. Her preoccupation would enable me to finish my errands and get the house in order. 
No small feat with a young daughter. Serena skipped into the dining room, grabbed her plate, then paused suddenly. Her dark eyes fixed on the table for a moment before she looked at me in confusion. Where are the flowers? You said you liked them. They're drying out, princess. I smiled at her, gesturing towards the window. They were a little wet. Oh. She looked disappointed, but didn't say anything else. Plate in hand, she went back to her room. I heard the door close behind her. For some reason, I wanted to cry. I ate my lunch alone at the table, then went to retrieve the flowers. I brought them to the sink. The stems were tangled. Carefully, I worked them apart and rinsed away the clump of dirt holding them together. Something had come loose from the dirt and fallen into the sink. A ring? A muddy, tarnished ring. I picked it up, then held it under the running water. It was missing a stone, and the filigree band was slightly bent, but with a little love, it could be beautiful again. It looked very old. I didn't know if it was valuable or not, but it was probably important to someone. I slipped the ring onto my right ring finger so I wouldn't lose it, intending to find the owner later. I couldn't help but think about the conversation I'd had during breakfast. Looks like he proposed after all. I laughed, amused by the coincidence. Of course, my daughter found the flowers with a ring tangled in their roots. I dropped the flowers in a bowl on the table, making a sad excuse for a centerpiece. I didn't add water, they were wet enough already. Apparently, Serena's daddy prince lived in a swamp. Serena stayed in her room until dinner. By then, the house was tidy and my errands were done. When I went to get Serena, the door was closed and the lights were off. I knocked lightly on the door before opening it to find my daughter standing at the castle wardrobe. The double doors were open and she was leaning forward, peering inside. I turned on the light, causing her to glare at me. Turn the lights off, mommy. I didn't, not liking the tone she was taking with me. Go wash up for dinner, now. When she didn't start marching, I began to count. One, she crossed her arms. Two, she stomped her foot, but before I could get to three, she stormed past me, slamming the door behind her. The wardrobe was still open, so I walked over to close it. The carpet was wet, soaking through my slippers, squishing with every step. As I moved to the closet, I saw something, a pale face crowned with golden curls and forget-me-not eyes. Blake? But my ex was not crouching in his daughter's closet. There was nothing there, except a selection of dress-up clothes and plastic jewelry. The face was gone almost as soon as I'd seen it, leaving a hollow ache in my chest. I closed the doors and stood there for a long moment in silence. Dinner was cold by the time I ladled it onto our plates. I didn't even remember walking back to the kitchen. Serena pushed the noodles around with her fork but didn't eat them. We didn't talk. I felt like some part of me had checked out. Mommy? Her voice pulled me back. I looked up to see her smiling at me. Relieved that the storm had passed, 
I smiled back. What is it, sweetheart? You're wearing the ring. I looked down at my hands and suddenly remembered the sorry little thing I was wearing on my right hand. Oh, only for safekeeping. I need to find the owner. I didn't want to lose it. You're the owner, silly. I'll hold on to it for now. I reached over to tousle her dark curls. Her hair was damp, which gave me pause. Why is your hair wet? Serena slouched in her chair and went back to moving food around her plate. The carpet was wet too. I kept my voice quiet and non-confrontational. My little girl didn't look up, keeping her head down. Can you tell me why? She pushed her plate away, getting up from the table and running down the hall. I heard her bedroom door slam moments later. I buried my head in my hands and took a few deep breaths, giving myself a moment before I stood up and walked over to the sink to rinse off our barely touched plates. Once the kitchen was clean, I grabbed the rag towels from under the sink so I could blot Serena's wet carpet. Her door was closed, so I knocked before opening. Serena was in bed, the blankets pulled up to her chin. The lights were off, the closet doors were ajar. My daughter was acting strange, with her eyes squeezed tightly shut. I could see her forehead furrowed from the effort as she pretended to be asleep. You don't want me to read you a bedtime story first? I dropped the towels on the floor. Brownish, reddish stains spread across the rags, like murky rust. The smell was bad too, like mildew and rot. I'll rent a carpet cleaner tomorrow. Try not to track in any more mud. It's hard to clean. I did my best not to sound angry, but there was a quiver in my voice. I wanted to cry. I blotted up the mess as best I could, spraying down the area with carpet cleaner and ruining towels in the process. Muddy carpets shouldn't have been a breaking point for me, but with my daughter feigning sleep only feet away, I was weak. Why was everything so hard? Every obstacle broke me. I was a bad mother, weak, broken, and alone. As much as I pretended everything was all right, nothing was. Mommy? Serena startled me back to attention. I want you to be happy. You're sad all the time. I looked up. She was sitting up in bed now. She looked past me, at the closet. The doors were still open, but I didn't see any phantom exes peering back at us. I know, sweetie. I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. You're wearing it on the wrong hand. She flopped back into her pillows and pulled the blankets up to her nose. I didn't know what she meant, but she closed her eyes again. I stood up, kissing her on the forehead. Good night. My throat felt tight, but having a breakdown in her room wasn't the answer. I needed to get some rest. I was tired, that's all. I moved to close the wardrobe, surprised to meet resistance. The doors didn't close. Leave it open. Daddy Prince likes to watch over me. I was too tired to argue and left to take a long shower. The stink of the mud was sticking to me, even when I used my most fragrant soaps. After I was done, wrapped up in the only clean towel, 
I passed my daughter's room on the way to mine. As I peered inside, something stopped me in my tracks. A white gloved hand beckoning from the closet and Serena's small hand reaching out to take it before she was violently pulled into the wardrobe. Serena! I ran into the bedroom just as the door slammed shut. I pulled on the handles, alarmed by the deafening silence. My daughter didn't answer my cries. She didn't make a sound. When I managed to pry the doors open, the closet was empty. Even her dress-up clothes were gone. I screamed, but no one answered. I knocked, but no one answered. I begged, but no one answered. I even crawled into that tight space, closing myself in, but nothing happened. The prince in my daughter's closet had stolen her away. I didn't sleep, curling up on the wet carpet and waiting for something, anything, to happen. Then I realized something. People will notice we're missing soon. They'll probably think I did something unspeakable because the truth is unbelievable. The ring was on the wrong hand. She told me this before Daddy Prince took her away. Maybe he was impatient for my answer. He asked me to marry him after all. We're going to live together in his castle. Serena is waiting for me there. She couldn't wait any longer. I can hear her singing now with a song that erases my every doubt. Skin as white as bone, lips as red as blood, sitting on a throne made of sticks and mud. Daddy Prince loves you, Daddy Prince loves me, and I love you too. We'll be family. Don't look for us. But if you must, check the closet. Attending your child's graduation, even if it's just from third grade, is a moment to be proud of. But graduations are normally kind of, well, normal. They certainly don't usually involve strange carousels and choices that claim to affect a child's entire future. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ali Habashi, that's exactly what one father is faced with. You see, the graduating class all have to choose one animal to ride on the carousel. But is it as simple as it seems? Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Ellie Hirschman, Addison Peacock, Erica Sanderson, Nicole Goodnight, Kyle Akers, Jessica McAvoy, and Matthew Bradford. So take a ride, make the right choice, but whatever you do, don't choose the goat.
It was graduation day, and the Oak Hills Elementary Carousel was on fire. Or at least that's what I thought at first. I'd never actually seen it with the lights on before. It had only ever been dark and still. But now, every flashing light bulb was blazing as the festivities in the auditorium wound to a close. I scanned the crowd of children for my son as the parents and former third graders were ushered out into the quad. The chaperone by the door, one of the teachers, I think, was clapping and urging the kids forward as they scrambled away from whatever activities they had been doing. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The snack table was completely ravaged. Candy wrappers and abandoned plates sticky with sauce or frosting stacked precariously high. Oh yes, the kids would all be riding that sugar train for a while. Hopefully Jack would crash early and wake up in time for church tomorrow. I noticed that some well-meaning adult had attempted to include a veggie platter on the snack table, and the untouched circle of green was like a secret garden among the trash. <laughs> what a waste. No one would force their kids to eat anything they didn't want to on that day, including me. The crafts table? Well, that was a wreck as well. The half-corpses of crayons littering the floor, puddles of glitter glue like gore in an illustration graveyard. Those crayons were the expensive kind, too. The kind that came in a box of 64 or 96. Jack's blonde head appeared suddenly at my side. He was flanked, as always, by a herd of his friends who had opted to follow my son rather than locate their own parents. I knelt down and forced my face into a smile. Hey, there you are, buddy. How are you kids feeling? Excited? Yeah. yeah! I want the bear! This morning you said you wanted a cheetah. I tried to remember if I had read anything about a bear in the booklet. I wish Ashley were there with us. She had driven herself half crazy reviewing the carousel's breakdown in the months leading up to the graduation. She would have known what the bear meant. I had told her she would make herself sick staying up all night studying the booklet, and when she had developed the high fever the night before graduation, it had taken all my restraint not to lift the ice pack off her face, stare into her eyes, and whisper, I told you so. Tasha wants the cheetah now. I don't want the cheetah anymore. I want the giraffe. But I wanted the giraffe. No wonder Ashley got sick. There was no telling which animal each kid would choose, despite the full year they had spent learning about them. Jack and his friends changed their minds three times a day. And even if they didn't, once you're in the carousel, raw instinct takes over. I noticed Tasha's parents standing by the door and began to encourage the kids over hoping the group would disperse naturally. Maybe there are two giraffes. I glanced down at the last one to speak. I couldn't remember this kid's name. I think I had met her once, but she was soft-spoken and pretty average on the whole, so I figured she was kind of background. There are a lot of those when you're the parent with a sociable child. This kid didn't attend our church either, so I automatically saw less of her. At the moment, she had a streak of dark glitter above one of her eyes from the crafts table. Was this the new one? I vaguely remembered my son mentioning a new student. <laughs> that was classic Jack to adopt the new kid into his group. I felt a little flush of pride at that. There's only one giraffe in our carousel, stupid. Jack, language. The group began to disband as their parents called them over. It was starting to get tense in the auditorium. I could see it in the adults' faces. I wondered if our children could feel it too. I put a hand on my son's shoulder noticing that his new collared shirt had not been stained yet. Hmm. Ashley would be happy about that. Jack was still warm from the dancing earlier. 
his eyes wide with the sugar high he had achieved beforehand. He didn't look nervous at all. I had been nervous the night I had ridden the carousel. That had been back in Iowa, in a school district with a much lower ranking and with a much smaller carousel. <laughs> what I wouldn't give to have had the chance to ride a cheetah. It was getting dark now, and as our group bottlenecked through the auditorium doors and out into the quad, the Oak Hills carousel shone like a beacon. In the weeks leading up to graduation, the third graders had worked diligently on their final projects, the most important of which was the preparation of their three-story carousel. Colorful silks hung neatly from the shields, which had been polished spotless. They gleamed in the flashing light. Hot white, blood orange, and emergency red bulbs winked down at us. The canopy was decorated with plastic flowers so that the most faded of the carousel's color was hidden away entirely. Beautiful painted walls spun slowly, depictions of animals and children running across their surfaces as they moved, so that it seemed as though the colorful mass of creatures was transformed into an equally bright playground of kids smiling and playing. It was awe-inspiring, as expected for the price of sending our kids here. <sighs> I only wish that I could see the inside of it. If the outside looked this incredible, then the animals themselves must have appeared almost alive. The music hadn't started yet, so I took a second to dispense some last-minute advice to my son. From the chorus of muttering going on around us, the other parents were doing the same. I took a knee and looked into my son's eyes. All right, buddy, this is it. Do you remember what we learned this year about the carousel? It's important to follow our head, heart, and gut. His expression was stoic as he pointed to his face, chest, and stomach in turn. The animal that we choose is who we are. That's right, buddy. And what else did I teach you? Do you remember the most important thing? Yeah, don't choose the goat no matter what. That's right. No matter what. You promise? Promise. Pastor Johnston says that only bad people choose the goat. I nodded, glad that he had listened. I only hoped that it would be enough to convince him should some faulty instinct take over. I opened my mouth to say something else, anything else that might help him. But a song cut me off, soft and gravelly at first, skipping unevenly over the tune like a record player in need of repair. Gradually, it grew louder and steadier, the tinny organ music beckoning the children away from our final advice. As the door slid open, I couldn't help but think it was like the Pied Piper's fantastical rotating tomb. No matter which school district it's in, a carousel door only opens twice a year once to let our children in, and once again to let them out. Potential lives or dies behind that door. I threw my arms around Jack as he began to turn towards the churning machine, and I hoped he wouldn't feel the desperate fear in my embrace. I love you. Releasing him and standing up, I stepped back and watched nervously as my only child moved towards the carousel. He practically ran, the speed of his pace completely without hesitation. My son was the first one to enter. The rest of the children, all either trapped in their own parents' anxiety hugs or staring into the wide-eyed wonder at the music box that had just invited them inside, seemed to come out of a trance when Jack bounded through the door. Tasha was the first to break away, practically clawing at her mother to escape the worried clamp of her arms and striding purposely through the doors after Jack. Stefan was not far behind. Suddenly, the quad was churning with kids eager to join the riders, 
and in a flurry of noise and color, they sprinted, pushed, and shouted through the door. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the new kid stand on her toes and kiss her mom's cheek, where she surely left a sprinkle of glitter behind. She was the last one through, and as soon as she stepped over the threshold, the door slammed shut. The carousel's musical score seemed to swell as the last of the children was swallowed. Tasha's parents spotted me and approached. Her mother nodded solemnly and ran a hand over the scratch her daughter had left her. Stefan's father joined us as well, and together we waited. No one in the quad spoke, not one word. It had taken Ashley and I nearly five years to get Jack into Oak Hills Elementary. We knew at the start that we could only afford to have one child, especially with the price of elementary schools skyrocketing like they had been in the years before Jack was born. Ashley, at one point, had asked me about whether or not it might be better to have a second child and just enroll them both in a less expensive school, but I had vetoed that idea immediately. Ashley didn't get it. She had gone to a pretty decent elementary and had some choice when it came to her carousel. She didn't know what the inside of a truly cheap carousel looked like, but I did. It looked like chipped paint and splinters, and when it came to the animals, there was absolutely no choice at all. Initially, I had wanted the wolf. No, that's not right. I had needed the wolf. It's like that when you're in there, surrounded by the garish lighting and wincing at the volume of the fairground music. A need. Even in a small carousel like mine, the choices seemed overwhelming. Until you find your mount. As soon as I saw the curve of its gray neck and the curl of its fur, it was almost as if none of the carousel's shortcomings had mattered anymore. I had traced one small hand over the faded green of its saddle and gripped and twisted the pole that shot between its shoulder blades. Howling filled my ears and drowned out the broken beat of the music just as my hazy surroundings snapped into sharp focus. I was the wolf. And then Peter had shoved me down. The back of my head knocked against the shoe-worn slats of the floor and by the time I sat up, he had stolen my seat. Sorry, but I called the wolf when we were outside. But he hadn't. He had called the badger. I had heard him. The wolf began to move. Every animal is frozen without a rider. The natural bob of the creature on the pole triggered only by the weight of a child. And now the wolf was moving without me. I choked back a sob when the pole started to shift. The animal, my animal, skewered beneath the biggest bully I had ever known. In the end, I had taken the dog. It was like the wolf, the same color as my first choice, coating its greyhound body. It looked even better, smoother, like it would rather play with me than bite me. Howling again filled my ears when I gripped the pole. And by the time the ride had finished, I was content. But I never stopped wondering exactly who I'd be if I'd only ridden the wolf. I noticed Tasha's mother pull the Oak Hills carousel booklet from her purse and began to flip through it. I followed suit, reaching into my back pocket and grabbing the 100 pages that my wife had memorized. Boar, beaver, bear. Family. That was the bear's main attribute. And that wasn't bad. A strong family, a large family might be fun. I scanned through the required classes, applicable colleges, and recommended jobs first. I saw almost immediately that Jack couldn't possibly be this one. As a bear, he would be required to take every math class that his high school had to offer, plus extra summer classes. 
and Jack hated math. Decent college prospects for a bear, but I had always imagined him at a better school than any of the ones listed. The jobs ranged from construction to engineering, nowhere close to the political role I thought he might have grown into eventually. Living conditions recommended a large house, small town. He would definitely change his mind once he saw the animals themselves. There was no way he was the bear. He's in third grade, I reminded myself. People change. Still. I skipped over the romantic compatibilities and began reading about the clubs and societies that benefited the bear. Not much. A few small-name groups that might help him find an internship or a daycare for his kids at some point, but nothing too flashy. I wasn't expecting much help from the society section for any of the animals here, though. Even if I sold my house, hell, even if I sold 10 of my house, I wouldn't even touch the amount needed to send my kid to the schools with connections. Those schools were elite, nearly impossible to get in, unless you were the offspring of some celebrity or millionaire or something. Those carousels, well, they would have lions, griffins, dragons, and an entire pack of wolves. Easy. Either way, Jack would have other networks. Our church, for one. Unless, of course, he chose the goat. The organ music ground on. Then the song hitched, the machinery stalled, and stopped. Everything reversed. All of the children had chosen their animal. Now, as the murals turned slowly before us, it looked as though the playground of children were ballooning into animals, a flurry of feathers and scales and fur punctuated by the gleam of eyes and teeth and talons. The painted animals were too realistic, I decided suddenly. They should have been more cartoonish, smiling and dancing and holding hands. In the blink of the fiery bulbs, the shadows dipped too deeply into their roaring mouths. At the heart of the roiling herd, I saw the goat rearing its ugly head. Black box pupils and curling horns in a mass of brown fur, highlighted red with the light. The boy who had chosen the goat at our school had been called Miguel. My most vivid memory of him was of the last time he was in class with us. Peter, the boy who had taken the wolf from me, was leaning over Miguel's desk and chanting an old playground song. It was the one that the girls always sang when they jumped rope. Nothing good about a goat, a goat's no good. Doesn't do the things that an animal should. He screams all day and he bucks all night. Better watch out for his overbite. Nothing good about a goat, a goat's no good. Wouldn't grow a brain even if he could. Want some food, but he doesn't have cash. That's when the goat goes and eats some trash. Nothing good about a goat, a goat's no good. Dumber than coal or firewood. Peter only stopped singing when the pencil had gone all the way through his eye, like a pole through a carousel animal. We didn't see Miguel again after that. Now, I knew that all goats probably weren't violent offenders, but the statistics don't lie. Prisons in the U.S. were packed with goats. I don't think anyone could blame a parent for wanting their child to steer clear of that risk. Please, God, let Jack have picked anything, anything at all but the goat. I gasped as the first child stepped through the door. Tasha's toothy grin was wide and triumphant, and I heard her mom draw in a shaky breath beside me. I felt a thin layer of sweat blanket my skin. Where was Jack? Had the pecking order changed? 
Had he been cast out before the door had even opened? And then one pale hand reached out and tugged on one of Tasha's braids. She yelped and smacked at him. Jack elbowed her in the side, and they laughed roughly as they both shoved their way towards us. Wait for me! Stefan bounded after them as the throngs of post-carousel children poured out of the machine and sought their parents. My niece nearly gave out with relief. Jack still had friends, and the fact that they had led the children out of the carousel meant that they hadn't chosen weak options either. There was no need to ask what they had chosen. Each child had started babbling at once as soon as they were close enough. Dad! Dad, I got the boar. It had super sharp tusks like this on its nose, and... I got the crocodile, and Jack and I were practically right next to each other, but I was up and to the side to the right. Yeah, Tasha was on the crocodile, and it was so awesome. It had jaws like this. The boar that Jack was on had this dark fur that was like... I rode the swan. Their wings were gigantic. You could tell even though they weren't open and spread out. There is no swan, Stefan. You got a goose. There are no swans in our carousel, Stefan. We learned about the goose in class. See? Jack says so too. Told ya. I glanced at Stefan's fathers, and they nodded and mouthed goose. Glancing down at my own packet, I flipped back a few pages and scanned the information on the boar. Career. That was the main attribute for the boar. Huh. I could have sworn Jack would have chosen something with a social ranking, like the dog. People change. I brightened when I saw the rest. Starting in the following year, Jack would automatically be signed up for a solid balance of classes with sports-based extracurricular activities. Speech and debate would be added as an extracurricular in high school, with an opportunity for student government roles after sophomore year. He would ultimately have a great pick when it came to university options. There were even some international ones on the list. And the jobs. The choices ranged from professional sports to consulting to law. I nearly cried when I noticed that there were even a few societies listed in the networking section. Jack, you picked an amazing animal, bud. I knelt down and scooped him into a hug, squeezing him to me despite his muffled protest. After church tomorrow, I am going to buy you the biggest frozen yogurt with whatever you want on top, okay? Really? Yeah, I am so proud of you. You know that? Yeah. I let Jack escape and stood up, feeling the weight of that night lift from my shoulders. In about a week, Jack would receive his official ID card in the mail. He would be registered in the system as a boar, and next year he would start his required classes. Ashley's anxiety would improve, and we would finally be able to sleep easier. It was finally over. Mila... I glanced to my left and noticed that a mom, the new kid's mom, was wringing her hands and staring at the open carousel door. Mila, so that was her name. A teacher came forward to start corralling the children. Tasha, your dress. The little crocodile's outfit was completely splashed with something. The latest sacrifice to the crafts table, no doubt. <laughs> Stefan, not you too. What is on your shoes? Did you step in paint, kiddo? I chuckled and glanced down at Jack's pristine collared shirt. Then I frowned. I swiped a thumb over a few large spots that had appeared over his heart like merit badges. They were still wet. Was this here earlier? What is this, Jack? Mila? Mila, please come out of the carousel now, honey. The kids had gone quiet, but they were all exchanging excited glances with each other. Their baby teeth had started falling out a few years earlier 
and the jumble of two large adult teeth fitted in their mouths reminded me of the murals on the carousel still twisting behind them. I looked around, and even in the dark, it was clear that ours were not the only children that were stained. It happened in the carousel. I glanced down at Jack, at his two large teeth. Mila, Mila, please come out of there. The door is going to close. Jack, where is Mila? Please, Mila, please come out. In the carousel. Why? Jack stared at me, and the carousel seemed to burn behind him. Mila chose the goat. The memory of Miguel, of the day that he had stabbed Peter, suddenly resurfaced from the deepest pools of my repression. I had been the one to start the chant, the one about the goat. Peter may have been the wolf, but I was the dog. And ever since the carousel, we had run in the same pack. Nothing good about a goat. A goat's no good. Doesn't do the things that an animal should. Only bad people choose the goat, Dad. Nothing's good about a goat. A goat's no good. And Mila was stupid and chose it anyway. Teeth, tusks, howl, eyes, spark, flash, fire, scratch, super sharp tusks, jaws like this. The wings were gigantic. You could tell. Mila. Mila. Her name was Mila. So we didn't let her leave. Mila! Just as all eyes seemed to flash to my son, the carousel door slammed shut, and everything was dark and still. With a creepy eye and a twisty horn, should have stayed home, should have never been born. A goat's no good. Nothing good about a goat. Nothing left to do but cut its throat. In our final tale, the world is dealing with a new, extremely infectious disease. We join a youth pastor doing his best to deal with these events when a mother bursts into his office with her young daughter, who's been outed as having the disease. But in this tale, shared with us by author Robert E. Rodden II, being infected means quarantine, or worse. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Doolin, Erica Sanderson, and Mike Delgadio. So let's listen as the man is forced to make some tough decisions when he's trying to do right by someone who's contracted the disease known as Sunflowers Weep. The Centers for Disease Control had named it Sunflowers Weep, but the terrified masses made it theirs, with labels like Satan's Mouth and that old-time favorite Mark of the Beast. If a neighbor thought you had the symptoms, you could bet they would call the hotline, and by bedtime, 
You'd be housed in one of the internment camps placed outside most major cities. I was thinking how paranoia was like this disease, spreading quickly through the world unchecked, with no discernible pattern. So, we're agreed. The pastor interrupted my obsessive thoughts. I felt his eyes on me, but I was staring out the window where the bright June sun was liquid fire, and everything had a golden tinge, even the freshly cut grass. I'm not sure, Dave. This time's different, isn't it? My God, I'd seen photos on the internet. An old man's bicep, a young man's hip joint. And once, in an image that poignantly struck at the frailty of human flesh, a woman's breast, the source of nurturing for all mankind, the delicate tissue corrupted in a way that haunted me for days after. Not at all. Same as the others. Infestation began with a dime-sized rash that itched like poison oak. In just days, the patch thickened and grew into a pancake of rough skin, upwards of five inches in diameter, with whiteheads as large as pencil erasers breaking out across the surface in a spiral pattern that queerly resembled the head of a sunflower. As dreadful as this stage of infection was, very quickly, it became nightmarish. For all at once, the whiteheads would burst open. We have to support each other on this. And within each gaping hole, they found the grotesqueries of infection. Small life forms termed florets, for their resemblance to the blossoms that covered the heads of sunflowers but looking every bit like fat white larvae, wriggled lethargically as they feasted on the chemistry of the diseased body part. The weeping denoted in the official name was a clear liquid that continuously oozed out of the openings around the larval bodies, determined to be a harmless waste product left over from the creature's feeding. Extracting them with tweezers was lethal. Within minutes of extracting the plump bodies from their nests, the victims convulsed and died. The larvae were attached to the bottom of the cavity, and breaking them free released a toxin into the victim that attacked several vital systems. Over 8,000 men, women, and children died before the discovery. <clears throat> Dave cleared his throat. I didn't want to turn around and face him or the problem not even from behind the relative safety of my desk, where I functioned as youth pastor. The same yellow gold in the grass gave an aura to passing cars. It blazed fiery white stars off chrome and glass. And I wanted to be out there at a baseball game or on a walk, someplace, anywhere, but here. It is important we stay united in these dark days. When I stand up there, People look to me for spiritual guidance. What will they think if someone questions a decision of the church elders? The match flared, that old familiar fuse lit, and a slow burn began. My face tightened. I managed to suppress most of the sigh, but the thinnest hiss escaped with my words. Don't you mean church board, Dave? 
No one's voted to support the idea of elders. It is only a matter of time. I turned in my chair to face him. His eyes turned sharp under the bill of the Chicago Cubs cap he wore today. Rosy splotches broke out on his cheeks. In spite of the air conditioning, Dave was shiny with sweat, and I remember thinking I hadn't seen him wear a cap since he'd accepted premature baldness and started cutting his hair close. Until then, Dave, you're not the king. Not very Christian, I admit, but the more he opened his mouth, the faster the fuse burned. Recovery from the disease was a random event. For some victims, the larvae simply died, dried up inside their cankerous wombs. The weeping stopped instantly, and the creatures could then be plucked out with tweezers and the devastated flesh treated. Yet others, over time, grew worse. The infestation spread, sometimes taking over entire areas of the body. The chest, the face, whole limbs, feasting until the victims wasted away and died. Only seconds before someone banged on my office door, I heard the storm blowing up the hallway. I was turning towards the commotion when out of the corner of my eye, I caught the pastor starting up from his chair. I experienced an evil sense of satisfaction when he spun around to face the door. He actually looked afraid. I had one of those dizzy feelings you get when something huge is about to happen. That silent spinning sensation, as though the bottom of the world is dropping out. The door was thrust open, and Gladys hurried in with her little girl clutched protectively under one arm. Gladys's eyes were black, shiny drops of terror, and little Mason was holding on for dear life to her mother's forearm, as though she was being carried over a river of fire. Behind them, clear down the other end of the hall by the front double doors, a packed crowd of church members was chattering at one another from round, pale faces. I barely heard them over the louder, closer sobs from Gladys. Okay, Gladys, hold on. Take a couple deep breaths. I came around the desk, but stopped short of them. Honestly, I was as paranoid and terrified as anyone was. Gladys had not seen the pastor yet. Dave had stepped quickly to the bookshelves behind her left shoulder. Gladys's breath hitched with panic as she tried to tell me. They... those... Gladys, please. They... they want to put my little girl in one of those hell holes. So it was true. Gladys must have hid the truth for at least a week, tried to maintain an appearance of normality. Someone here either guessed it or saw it. I found myself angry and ashamed of the turncoat. Who? What? Those... those monsters! <laughs> Gladys twisted her torso while still shielding her daughter in one arm to point through the door when suddenly she laid eyes on the pastor standing off to the side, watching her, now backing up against my bookcase as though he expected to slip right through it and the wall behind. The back of his head thumped the bookcase, and it must have hurt something awful from the panicked way he slapped his hands on the top of his cap. 
It struck me how both adults' eyes shot wide and bright with very nearly the same emotions. I was astounded by what happened next. Dave, who had always maintained a certain level of self-control even when under stress, pointed an accusing finger at both mother and child and began shouting louder than Gladys's fearful screaming. Right now, Dave was not behaving like the leader of this church. You... You... too... Gladys, you must see. Black Times. She... You! Monster! Hey! Think! Think! While they faced off, I looked at Mason. Her large blue eyes fixed upon her mother's face with a frightening intensity. My heart ached for her. But I looked at the bright pink headband covering most of the top half of her head, and terror shot through me like black lightning. The band was tight and pushed her hair into a bouquet of brown curls that spilled out the top. In a moment, I saw what had given her away. The thin white line of a bandage peeked out from underneath the bottom of the headband. I looked at her face again, the downturned bow of her little mouth, the snow-white fear in her face, the staring eyes. She was in one of our children's Bible studies, a gentle girl with a shy way about her. Exposing children, and God only knows who else to infection! I heard Dave shouting in what was supposed to be a higher volume of his reasonable voice, but sounded to me like hysteria. Gladys wasn't buying it either. She had Mason drawn tightly to her side. Her eyes were poisoned daggers flying across the distance between her and Dave. A disturbance out in the hallway drew my attention, and I leaned so I could see past Mason. It took a few seconds to accept what I was seeing, and then I think my eyes nearly popped from their sockets when I recognized the uniformed police officers and the men in hazmat suits from the health department. They were talking to individuals in the crowd by the double doors. The look I gave Dave must have been bloated with disgust, as suddenly he glanced at me and did a double take. What is it? I couldn't answer. How do you speak through emotions so thick and heavy that they're like a wall of pain? I just stared at him with my mouth open. Dave put his hands up between himself and Gladys's face and stepped wide around mother and daughter. As he passed me, I stared transfixed at the new and dangerous animal he had become. The tiny blonde hairs on the back of his neck glistened in a heavy layer of sweat the shiny fibers bristling, as though he had just dunked his head under a water faucet. He saw who was down the hall, didn't bother looking back, shutting his door on the way out to greet the officials. If I could have wished myself instantly to the other side of him, I knew I'd see the face of reason on a man about to offer up his sacrifice. Gladys swung back at me, racked by grief. I heard tiny, thin sounds coming from her throat, she was trying to hold in a scream. There was a muttering sound approaching the door from the other side. I started glancing about as if I was trying to find another door to shove Mason and her mother through. 
Maybe I just wanted an escape for myself, because I knew what was about to happen, and I didn't want to witness it. I did time in Joliet State for trafficking cocaine. At the lowest point of my life, I nearly pulled the trigger of a 45 against the temple of a narc, but I found something in myself that wouldn't let me, and so I did six years in a black, abhorrent nightmare. I'd seen and done things and had things done to me in that, excuse me, Lord, fucked up hell on earth that made me doubt my sanity. So when my office door opened again, I was fast reverting to the unsaved animal I had been back then, even though I was scared to death by what that little girl had hidden under her cutesy headband. I was tensing up in a way that I knew meant violence was coming. The old hated but familiar red mist was spreading over my eyes. And when Dave started forward with the hazmat team just a few feet beyond the threshold, I shoved out my right hand, palm flat and large as a sign, in front of the pastor's startled face. Have them wait a moment, please. The police and the hazmat team stopped in their tracks, looking from me to Dave. Why? I need to speak with you first, Dave. Why he did it, I don't know. Maybe the look in my eyes, maybe the tone of my voice. Maybe it was God opening the thinnest crack in the wall of bluff Dave used to hide his own terror. For whatever reason, he turned to the people in the hall and spoke calmly. Please, just give us a sec, okay? He didn't like it, I could tell, and neither did they. But the door closed without interference, and Dave turned around to face me. In an instant, he saw something in my face that alarmed him. I stepped quickly past Mason, not worrying about infection now, and locked the office door. What in God's name are you doing? Move over there, pastor. Just then, I could see an awful lot of thoughts jumping around behind those eyes. I wanted to make sure he didn't make a bad choice at that moment because I knew I was ready to hurt him, maybe permanently. You will move over there now. I pointed to the wall behind him. He swallowed first, a nonverbal way of deciding correctly. He was trembling all over as he backed up. He wasn't afraid of Mason now. He would have bumped against her had Gladys not pulled her out of his path, but he was very afraid of me. He glanced at the door, then at me, perhaps one last test to see if a shout would pay off, and I tilted my head slightly and narrowed my gaze. There was no sound inside the room but the soft breathing of four people. I vaguely realized I'd been squeezing my fists while Dave looked me over, and when I saw understanding in his eyes, I relaxed a little and opened my hands. Dave's back was against the bookcase now. Stay. Then I turned my attention, all of it, to Mason. Her eyes were shiny with tears. I knelt down so that I was eye to eye with her. I smiled, knowing that I was going on instinct, following an invisible line of illogic and emotion that directed my actions. It was like miraculously discovering that I could speak a foreign language. Perhaps it was the same when a true believer for the first time begins to speak in tongues. 
You either trusted and went with it, or you mentally fought against it. I thought about it for a moment, how it shouldn't make sense, but right at that moment, I was desperate for any outcome but permanent incarceration for this little girl. Maybe for the first time in my life, I was discovering the true quality of faith. I raised my hands until they were level with the pink headband. Mason was staring at them. I was afraid she might pull away at my next move, but she stood still as my hands came forward. I gently grasped the bottom edge of the headband and very carefully raised it. She winced once as the material caught then pulled free from a sticky spot on the bandage underneath. I paused a moment, looking her straight in the eyes, watching her watching me. Her beautiful curls fell down over the white bandage. I dropped the headband. My heart banged in my chest and throat. There was a round, wet circle in the center of the bandage, up high on her forehead. Never taking my eyes off hers, I slid my fingertips gently around the sides of her head until they touched the ends of the white surgical tape that held the bandage in place. After a moment to prepare myself, I slowly peeled the tape forward until I felt the bandage loosen at her temples. It was stuck to the circle, but I kept pulling, very gently, very carefully, and it tugged free into my hands. There it was, Satan's mouth, mark of the beast, sunflowers weep on the face of an innocent. I heard Dave's sharp intake of breath, <gasps> then a whisper of movement. I glanced up to make sure he wasn't going for the door, but he had turned towards the corner and had both hands on the wall above his head like a guy waiting to be searched for drugs. One incredibly round, frightened eye stared at me from under his right arm. Mason's smooth forehead was infested. The circle of disfigured flesh was thick and inflamed, a bright red that I knew would be hot to the touch. It was so much larger than I could imagine a tiny forehead could hold at least five inches across. It had eradicated her hairline, so that where before the hair must have grown thick and vibrant, now only a few individual strands remained in the pocked circle. The whiteheads had already burst open. Inside the inflamed cavities, the tips of the larvae wriggled in a sleepy rhythm as though they dreamed while they fattened themselves. I was nearly mesmerized by the even spiral of the florets coming from the center of the devastation. As soon as I had lifted the bandage away, the openings had begun to weep, and their teardrops ran down into her eyebrows and lashes. I followed them downward, stopping at her eyes, where real tears swelled up and pushed over the bottom lashes. Does it hurt? Like a toothache in my bones. I was overwhelmed with an emotion I don't think I can describe clearly, even now. It was sort of like a warm wave of pity and love raining upward from where my knees rested on the carpet 
to enclose Mason and me alone inside a circle. Maybe it was only my imagination, or maybe if I could have stood outside myself right then, I would have seen the air distorted around us. I reached for Mason's shoulders and drew her away from her mother. Gladys was sobbing above me, and for some reason I thought of Mary Magdalene washing Christ's feet. I pulled Mason to my chest and held her. She began to weep against my shirt. I felt the hot dampness of her tears. It seemed right to do so, so I hugged her even tighter against me. I felt the rough pattern on her forehead pressing into the right side of my chest. Her little arms clutched me and held on tightly, and I started saying something without being fully aware of what. After a moment, I knew I was telling her it was all right. She was not a sinner, and she did not deserve this. I started praying the Lord's Prayer softly against the top of her head, burying my face in her soft curls, smelling her little girl's scent. Somewhere in the middle of the prayer, I felt it happening. Minuscule pinpricking sensations, like the tiniest electric shock, as though thin, microscopic splinters had just shot through the material of my shirt and into the skin over my right chest. Just as quickly, the spot numbed, and there was absolutely no pain in the invaded flesh. I knew that by the end of the day, the itching sensation would begin. I continued to hold her tight while she cried it all out. I didn't want to let her go, but I was fearful I would smother her in my own desperate need to give comfort. Finally, I drew back a little and let her detach herself. The larvae were still within their nests inside her forehead, but the weeping from the opened wounds had ceased completely. The doctors at the internment camp would recognize that the larvae were dead, that they could safely pluck them from their nests and treat the area with ointment and antibiotics. In six weeks, the nightmare would be over for Mason. Only a faint scar would remain above her lovely face. Perhaps the hair would even grow back. Gladys dropped to her knees and hugged Mason to her, unaware it was over, and Mason buried her face against her mother's chest and cried. I saw Gladys stiffen. It's okay. Gladys looked at me as if it was insane to think so. I looked at where Dave still cowered in the corner with his hands up and his forehead mashed against the wall with the baseball cap ridden up on the back of his head. I got up, unlocked the door, and opened it. The hazmat team entered, but they stopped to look at Gladys. She was standing now, with a look of awe on her face, and having trouble getting into words exactly what she'd discovered. With a giant smile that was nearly a laugh, she gasped. <gasps> They're dead. The creatures are dead and she's cured. The leader of the hazmat team came forward from the group and knelt down. He had on a mouth and nose filter, and he put on a pair of eyeglasses and stared intently at the infested area, while his rubber-gloved hands gently pulled at the edges of the circle. After a moment, he frowned and raised his eyebrows. He looked at the other men, 
shrugged his shoulders, and removed his filter. He took off his glasses and stood up. This child needs treatment, not quarantine. She's past the dangerous part of infection. Gladys was looking at me as though she'd had an epiphany. She opened her mouth to speak, but I gripped her forearm and I shook my head slightly. The look of confusion was there for only a moment, and then it was joy again, as she and Mason were filtering out of the room with the hazmat team and the police officers. One of the policemen remained behind. He was looking at Dave, who had turned around and was trying to compose himself. There was a look in his eyes as I had never seen. Something very close to mania. He pointed at me. Him! Him! He's the infection! He is spreading this abomination! The policeman gave me one brief, disinterested look, and then turned to call out into the hallway. We got another one here. Dave had a look of triumph that was frightening to behold, and I felt my own blood turning cold when the team shoved back through the doorway. But they weren't looking at me, and the instant I caught on, I saw it reflected in Dave's eyes. Triumph crumpled into panic. The cop turned to the leader of the hazmat team. I saw it when he was shoved up against the wall that way. Back of his hat was popped up and I seen the bottom edge of the infection. They moved in and Dave surged forward against them like a swimmer trying to break through an ocean wave. They grabbed his arms and took him down to the carpet face first as gently as they could. And there it was, just below the edge of his baseball cap, a sliver of angry red flesh like the bottom half of the devil's own grin. There was a moment where I thought about it. The cautious side of me didn't want to take another group of spore into me. It might kill me. And maybe it wouldn't work anyway. Perhaps the alien entity could sense an infected body and refuse to enter. It didn't matter either way, really. I didn't feel the same overpowering urge towards Dave that I had for Mason, an innocent child inflicted with the mark of the beast. As I left the office, I knew the truth of the cure. For both Dave and myself, either love would save us or we would die. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. 
All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.